0: Thursday morning, (laughs) I received a course for correction. (laughs) And if you were in the Navy, you probably are familiar with that. I was a merchant seaman, and I know them from that vantage point. The vessel is sailing on a particular line of navigation, heading towards some point, and the correction comes, and the helmsman turns the wheel, and the course is altered, and now the vessel is setting in a different direction. And most course corrections are small as the vessel. And today, uh, they're usually controlled by automatic steering mechanisms. But back in the day, um, when I was sailing on the merchant ships, we referred to that as the iron mic, and that makes dozens of small corrections every hour to keep this uh, vessel sailing dead on. But sometimes the corrections are major, as when a new needs assessment would send a warship into a different area or a different ocean, or a merchant vessel has just uh, navigated around some uh, obstacle, like an island or a peninsula, and has altered its course to head to where it wants to go. Or maybe it had already altered its course because of weather, and now it needs to turn back and head toward their desired destination. And our course correction is more like that last one. There's some rough water ahead, and though we cannot maybe miss the entire storm and miss it all together. We're going to alter course enough um, to make our sailing better. And what I mean is this. We've been studying uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's one of the more difficult writings in our Bible. And the section that we turn to next has a couple of verses in it that some people might trip over. Now, of course, I've known they were there, and I intended to deal with them. Uh, But the issues that they raised are really a little more complex, and they need to be dealt with separately. And I was going to talk about the passage and tell you that we'd address those problems later the next time we were together, and that's where the course correction comes in. The navigator (laughs) has altered our path. And we need to talk about those potential stumbling blocks now and come back to Ecclesiastes next week. So here's the deal. From our modern cultural framework, these two verses would be deemed by many to be offensive. But if you shine the light of the Bible on them, they will not look quite the same. You will understand them better, and you will see them as they were meant to be seen, as God intends them to be understood. Now, frankly speaking, some people will still not like them, some will still be offended by them. And yet, reality, the way things really are, <laughs> it's not always pleasant and it doesn't bend to our likes and dislikes. The prime reality, of course, is God, the maker and shaper, the designer and definer, the creator who made out of nothing. The things that he saw fit and consulted no one and is answerable to none. The wise man or woman hears what he has to say and takes it to heart. It's the foolish people who think they know a better way. So we're going to begin by reading the verses in question. And we're going to talk about each one of them fairly briefly. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put them both into the larger biblical picture. And both the passages we need to look at are found in Ecclesiastes 7. And verse 26 is where we'll start, and uh, it, it reads this way. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who plays as God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, some people in our culture are going to find a number of things here which they will deem offensive. And Perhaps you're aware of the controversy surrounding Karen Pence, uh, the vice president's wife. Uh, The CNN headline uh, reads, Vice President's Wife to Teach at an Anti-LGBT School. And you probably guessed it's a Christian school. The commentator, Clay Kane, complains, Emmanuel Christian insists applicants initial a pledge to live a personal life of moral purity. Imagine that. Imagine that. And he continues his rant complaining that the school further defines moral misconduct as premarital sex cohabitation, extramarital sex, homosexuality, polygamy, transgenderism, and any other violation of the unique roles of the male and female. And Cain is outraged over this. The immoral are always outraged when their immorality is called into question. And he finds the language disgusting. That's his term. And yet it states exactly what this church, and countless others believe to be true. It is what Jews for 4,000 years and Christians for 2,000 years have always taught. And with the exception of polygamy, it is what every culture throughout most of all human history has deemed to be upright and good conduct. And that vitriol and hatred against Christians and the things that we hold dear becomes more and more apparent with each passing year. And the lines between good and evil are becoming more distinctly drawn. And soon, I think it's already upon us, the very nature of things will no longer allow people to dither in the middle. They'll be forced to choose one side or the other. And then, well, we'll see, won't we? But I'm not uh, proposing to address all of that. That is a battle between good and evil, which we're fighting every day and every time that we meet here together. See, I'm more concerned here with, with us and, and with people who are still seeking the truth who may stumble over a smaller thing. And the smaller thing I'm referring to is that culturally, we are offended that in that passage I just read, The woman is singled out and put in a bad light while the man is seen here as a victim. And if that were indeed the case, maybe there would be something to take offense at, but that is not what is happening here in this verse. And I am going to explain that to you. And I'm going to begin by saying this. A hundred years ago, no one would have had that particular problem with this passage. Maybe they would have had others, I don't know but they would not have an issue on that passage in that way. See, culturally, people back then understood that the terms, uh, that male terms uh, represented, they they stood for both the male and female, both the man and the woman. (coughs) It was a learned behavior, and really on the part of both men and women. (coughs) Excuse me, let me put it this way. The the male and the female each made adjustments in their thinking to see both angles. Now, small children uh, had to be taught this, but they got it. And a 100 years ago, everyone would have known, they'd have heard this or read this, they would have known exactly what it was saying, that while some women are the kind that ensnare men, so too some men are the kind that ensnare women, but the godly person, male or female, is going to escape that trap. You know, you know, the woman was not really being singled out as a monster, nor was the man uh, the victim. There are monsters and victims in both sexes, and everyone understood that. So as a society, we, we pretty much lost that skill. <clears throat> it would be difficult to regain it again because it's best learned in one's use. So now I try. And many others with me who who have to stand in front of people. We try, and though I may fail often enough, we try to use inclusive terms so that no one feels left out, whether I'm saying something positive or negative. <coughs> it's a much more laborious way of speaking. Uh, there, there was an economy of language in the way, old way of talking. M- many more words now be, you, need to be used so so that we don't accidentally leave someone out. And those of us who are older, like me, have to learn that new way of speaking. And I do so willingly because I want to clearly communicate what the text is saying. And that's where we are. And that's why things like this have to be explained. So for you to truly understand what we just read, you have to make these allowances for, for the way it was written, for how people spoke back then, It wasn't wrong, it was just different. And so if I were to say something like this, I would say it using inclusive language so no one would feel singled out or or left out. Now the next verse that we're going to look at, and I hope you understand why I've taken this detour, Because there would be some people who could potentially be sitting here and they could, when we talk about that verse, they're going to lose it. They're going to be sidetracked. They're going to wonder about this. Is the Bible so sexist that it would do this? But the next verse, which someone might sum over, may cause some people even more consternation than the one we just looked at. And here, I'm not going to so much explain this text Uh, That I'm going to save for later when we look at it in the context of the larger passage. Instead, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the stinger out of it. I'm going to remove the offensive part, but I'm going to do it by maintaining the integrity of the Hebrew. And the Hebrew is the language that uh, this text was originally written in. So Solomon is speaking in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, verse 28, and he says this, While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. And there you have it. (laughs) Based on what that verse, the way that verse is written right there, we would say that Solomon is saying that there are only a few upright men in all the world, but there aren't any upright women. Somebody's laughing, but yeah, that's, that's, a, a, that's offensive, isn't it? But but is that really what he's saying? And no, actually, that's not what he's saying. And again, I'm, I need to explain this to you. See, the NIV has added a word that is not in the Hebrew. The only other version of the Bible that I'm aware of that does that uh, is a paraphrase, and it's uh, the New Living Translation, and they, uh, they, they add this word, the NIV adds the word upright, the NLT adds the word virtuous, but neither of those words are in the Hebrew. That's not what Solomon wrote. What he really said was this, while my soul was still seeking but not finding, I found one man in a thousand, but not one woman in them all. He's not making a, a, an assessment of their moral standing. A- and when you read it in that way, there's really no offense there. I mean, it's still a difficult first. Uh, The meaning's not easily translated, but I believe, and others along with me believe the same kind of thing, that what Solomon is saying is something like this. As I was investigating these things, while I was searching out this life, but not grasping all of reality, there was one man in a thousand that I connected with that, that I understood and that who understood me. But I never made a connection like that with a woman. Can I put that into context for you? Recently, I heard a a man who was teaching others, and he said this, men need men to be better men. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Just as women need other, to make connections with other women to be better women. And the truth is, women make those connections with other women much more easily, so much more easily than men make with other men. And the sad truth is, often men make those connections only one in a thousand and we're poorer for it, much poorer. And some of you women know exactly what I'm talking about. You know your husband hasn't made those connections. So I'd say to you, pray for us, because men do need other men to be better men. And understood in that way, there's no offense here. So those two verses in the te- in the in the passage of the this book that we've been studying, um, may have caused some people trouble. And there was no way for me to talk about what's coming up and talk about this, and so we're talking about this, and then we're going to put that into the larger biblical context. And to do that, I'm going to tell you a quick personal little story about the verse that we just looked at. (laughs) So I've been a Christian now for over 40 years. And I've read the Bible through, cover to cover. I could not tell you how many times I've done that. Uh, it's been many years ago now, but my cousin Steve, who is also a pastor, uh, in a conversation that we were having at a family get-together on our farm, he quoted that verse to me, and my response to him was, It doesn't say that. <laughs> and he said, Oh, yes, it does. And the women livers are giving me fits over it. mean, right? that was his reply. Now, now, as we've just seen, we, we know that my cousin had, was both right and wrong, right? I mean, he had the quote from the NIV correct, but he didn't make use of the Hebrew there. But the reason I told you that story is that no matter how many times I had read through the Bible and I had read that very passage, it did not stick out to me. My cousin was acutely aware of it because of the problems it was causing in his church, but it wasn't even on my radar you know why I think that was? The reason is that it didn't even catch my attention. Is because of what I know that the Bible teaches concerning men and women. And whenever I come across those passages, it fits into that larger context. It just never stood out to me because I could never think in a term like that about females. And that larger context we're going to look at now. In that larger context, uh, it affects how you understand the Word of God. See, the Bible shines its own light on itself. Or another way to say it is the Bible is its own best interpreter. The more we know of what God's Word says, the more things fit together into a a coherent picture. So let's do that now. Let's look at the larger context by beginning at the beginning when God created our first parents. And so in Genesis chapter 1... Verses 26 and 27, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And right from the beginning, We learn that both the man and the woman are made in the image of God. And therefore, both are of infinite worth. One is not more valuable or worthy or necessary than the other. The male and the female have the extreme and overwhelming honor of being made in God's image. And all that that entails a personal relationship with god almighty to be loved by him and to love him back to be his friend and to be his child and because of this truth everywhere that the christian faith has taken root the lot of women has been improved that is a historical fact which can honestly not be denied our culture takes it for granted it doesn't remember where Our society's honor of women came from quite the opposite. Today, they accuse Christians of misogyny. But all you need to do is look at those parts of the world where Christianity never took root or where it was driven out to see the condition of the female without the influence of our faith. Places where women have few or no rights, where they're considered chattel the property of men where men rule over them and control every aspect of their life, where their husbands can beat them for any reason with absolute impunity, and indeed where their clerics instruct men on the proper way to beat their wives, and where women are second-class citizens or worse. But that's not Christianity. The Word of God declares that the man and the woman both are made in God's image and are of in infinite value because of it and that's the first thing we need to know about humankind everything else builds on that you me we bear the image of God but the Bible also teaches this that men and women are not identical God made the male and female and there is a difference built into us by the Creator so Genesis chapter 2 helps us to understand that difference a little bit better. We're going to read uh, just verses 18, 20, uh, 18, 22, and 24. And it's what it says. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And that's why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh. Adam had a need It was not good for him to be alone, and so God made Eve. God did not make Steve. I know that's an old joke, but it's true. He made a woman and not another man. God made the woman because men need what the woman brings to the equation, and and women need what men bring too. You see, men, we need the Steves in our lives to be better men. That is absolutely true. Uh, but and, and when we do make those corrections, I mean, I mean those connections with other men, I mean, isn't it like just this wonderful thing, this joy of knowing that kind of relationship? But that can't take the place of our Eves. <laughs> other men make us better men. Uh, the female makes us human. It's true. (laughs) I am so different than I was after getting married to that woman right over there. She civilized me. (laughs) Now I have to tell you, ladies, don't let this go to your head because we're a necessary part of your life too. (laughs) I hope you know that. Men and women are are the same and yet they're different and and it's kind of like my hands, right? Uh, I, I mean, I hold those up and... And and they're both hands, and they're the same, but they're different. And because they're the same and different, they can come together and they can meet. And each of them can fill the gaps in the other person's life. And the man and the woman become a unit. Kind of like my hands right now. Only unlike my hands, that unity is designed not to end. It's intended to last. Male and female, made in the image of God. Male and female, the same but different. That's what the Bible teaches. Right from the very beginning, it's, it's the way we were made. Now, now there's really uh, one more thing to consider here in Genesis. Actually, Genesis chapter 3, before we move on, it's going to shed a little bit of light to some of the problems that males and females have in the relationship. Uh, and because of the time I'm going to be re- brief here, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that in spite of all their advantages, uh, in an account for another time that we can't take up today, the man and the woman fell from their state of grace and innocence. They sinned, and everything changed at that point. In chapter 3 outlines in broad forms the consequences inflicted on our world because of sin. And this morning we're going to look... At only one of those consequences, it's the one found in verse 16. To the woman he, that is God, said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. He'd already said something to Adam or will say something to Adam about, uh, about his labor in, uh, in the fields. But this is the next part is the one I want uh, to consider. He says this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And I want you to know that that last sentence, that last sentence, that part that we want, is part of the curse which came upon our world resulting from the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. And that last phrase of that sentence does not provide a kind of justification for the man to rule over his wife. It's a result of sin entering our world. That ruling over the woman was not part of God's original design. But so is the first part of that sentence. That, too, is a result of the curse. But it doesn't mean what you might think it means, what many of you do think it means. And for us to understand what's really being said there, we're going to take a look at something that happened in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Cain and Abel children of Adam and Eve, had brought an offering to the Lord. Cain didn't act in faith, and so God wasn't pleased, and that upset Cain. And and then God says this to Cain in in verse 7 of chapter 4. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. And here's the important part. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, God is telling Cain that sin's waiting to catch him, and if it does, it's going to own him. That's what it desires to have you means. And what do you see here? I mean, it's the same construction that we just read in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, God is saying to Adam and Eve that sin has brought consequences which affect, their relationship the man will try to rule over his wife and the wife is going to try to control her husband and, and 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 that's the source of marital conflict in our world each person the man and the woman try to get their own way and it wasn't that way from the beginning it's a result of the fall the difference between what God said to Adam and Eve and what he said to Cain is the conjunction. <laughs> Sin was waiting to control Cain, but that's the conjunction. He needed to rule over it. When it comes to the consequences of sin in our lives, the woman would try to control the, the man. The conjunction again, this, this time a different one, and the man would rule over the woman. So the result of sin is this, this conflict where the woman's trying to control the man and the man's trying to rule the woman. Each of them are trying to get their own way. So the word of God tells us right from the beginning, the man and the woman both are made in the image of God, and so they are infinitely valuable, and they are made male and female, the same but different, each needing the other one. But because of sin, instead of seeking the good of their partner, we all, oh, you know it's true, we all try to get our own way, don't we? That's the human condition. That's the larger context those two verses from Ecclesiastes fit into. Now, there's one last thing to round uh, that I need to say to round out this larger context uh, of what the Bible has said about the male and female. And if I don't examine this matter and you're aware of it or you become aware of it later, you're going to feel as though I had cheated you by not addressing it, and you'd be right. So by God's grace, let's look into it right now. And to do so, we're going to turn this time uh, to the New Testament. And just one verse, others uh, we could talk about, just one verse, though, specifically First Timothy chapter 2. And again, I'm going to be succinct if I can. And let me put it to you this way. This final idea, I'm going to put it into these words. The male and female are the same but different. And that difference in some things translates into a difference in roles. Or what the man and woman might be called by God to do. So let's see what the text says, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 12, Paul writes the words to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach her, assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So the basic idea here is that a woman shouldn't be a pastor. There's more that can be said, but we're just going to take that as it is right now. To understand this, I think we need to talk about it. And there really is a lot to talk, more than we can be said today. But we're going to get at least a start. We're going to lay down a basis here. So let me state right up front that I'm going to talk about the way our church understands this. Other churches think differently than we do. And I'll say something about that, too. But let's begin by going back, if you would, for a moment, to my illustration of the hands. Remember I said they're the same but different. So let's make this graphic work a little better. Let's consider the hands of someone who's not like me, who is ambidextrous. And he or she can use either hand equally well. Uh, There is nothing, well, we're going to be honest, there's almost nothing that such a person can't do as well with the right hand as they do with their left hand. But there is one thing for certain that the right hand can do, but not as well as the left. The right hand can wear a glove made for the left hand but the fit's not ideal. And see, what I'm trying to say here is that a woman can do almost anything that a man can do as well as the man can do it. Almost anything, but not everything. And in the church, God has designed the role of the pastor to be filled by a man. A woman can do it, but the fit is an ideal. And I'm going to come back to that idea in a moment because it's important. But first, I think we need to acknowledge that our culture has uh, winked, actually it shut its eyes to this truth. And what I mean is, is that our society is so committed to the ideal of absolute equality between men and women, and not just an equality of worth, which I and the Bible and the church are committed to, but to an absolute quality of function that does not reflect reality. So as an example of what I'm getting at, let's just say that historically, uh, a man had to be able to carry a 150-pound weight for a distance of 100 uh, yards in order to qualify as a fireman. But if most women can't do that, the standards are lowered uh, to something that most women can meet and so qualify for. Now, that's been years ago for now, I mean, I don't know how many, probably almost 40 years ago, but I remember reading about the first city, and I believe it was Chicago, that did that very thing. In order to be able to hire more women to fight fires, they lowered the standards. Statistically, at that point, they were able to determine how many more people would die in fires every year because of the change. And I don't remember what that number was, but I think that even one person is one person too many. Those people would die because most of the female firefighters firefighters they were hiring would not be able to evacuate an injured or incapacitated person. Now, I assume (laughs) that some safeguards have since been put into place to ameliorate that situation, that danger, but I honestly, I don't know. My daughter, who is an accomplished young lady, in in her last semester at the Naval Academy would say this in, in most situations if a woman wants to do something that has been historically something that only men did and she can meet the same requirements as the man had to meet then land have at it and you know what that seems eminently sensible to me she also acknowledges that it's foolish to lower the standards just for the sake of hiring women I don't know how many people's toes I've stepped on, and I don't know how many people I may have offended by this, but I've got to speak the truth. So let's go back to the church and this idea about whether a woman should be a pastor or not. Let me, let me try to offer just a kind of plausibility, a kind of a reason. I'm not saying this is why God has made this decision, uh, but, but at least you'll you understand how such a thing could be. Uh, some people, of course, they're, they're going to be quite comfortable simply accepting what the Bible says about this, but other people, they may be helped if they can see at least some possibility, some reason, some, some rationale why this difference between men and women would be made. And let's acknowledge right off the bat that there is no physical limitations that would prohibit a woman from serving as a pastor. So why does the Bible teach it? Well, when I was in seminary uh, studying to be a pastor, uh, my advisor was a woman. She was an egalitarian. I hope you know what that means. Uh, But basically, she believed that in the church, everywhere else, a woman was free to do anything that a man can do. And she stated often that there is no essential difference between a male and female either could perform any role in the church. However... One time in a conversation with her, she said this, that women actually make better pastors than men because they are more sympathetic and empathetic. So you're saying there is a difference between male and female? Yes, but it's a positive difference was the response. It makes them more apt to fill the role. So you say. But if there is that difference, might it not provide the very reason that God says only men should serve as pastors? She had no answer to that. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not saying this is the reason, but maybe the sympathy and empathy might make them less likely to see or less able to resist the subtle attacks of our enemy. It's at least possible. You see, men and women are the same but different And you and I aren't wise enough to see all the implications of those differences. Only God knows that, so we would do well to listen to it. And those differences, they exist in every cell of our body in the very DNA that makes us male and female. When our first child was born, our son Earl, I was in seminary. We were so poor we couldn't even pay attention. And he was a small toddler, and he had so few tools. And he would take a baby-sized shoebox, and he's crawling around on the floor. And he'd push it on the floor, making truck noises. And and I scraped together enough money to buy him his first little toy truck. Now, our daughter Adeline, on the other hand, never made truck noises. And to this day, I don't think she's ever made a noise that sounded like a truck. But she did something that um, boys, my boys never did. When she would see another baby, she would get excited and try to reach for them, to try to hold that baby, to try to hug it. And, And that happened at the earliest of age. Before she could walk, she would act that way. I've told you this story before, but one Christmas when she was really small, she got a baby doll. You might not remember them, but you could fill that baby doll with warm water so that when you held her, you know, she'd feel warm to you. And our cat, Sassy, chewed a hole in it. And Adeline was devastated. And I told her, oh, don't worry about it, honey. We'll get you another doll. And that night after she went to bed, I walked by her room, and she was lying there on a bed and on her back, and she had that doll, and she's holding it up, and she's talking to it, and she was saying, How can I give you up? You're my baby. I can't let you go. I love you. Too much. And she kept the doll. When I was a boy, my uncle gave my brother and I a doll as a joke one Christmas. We took it out back and buried it. I suppose it's still there because we didn't dig it up. We did not... Teach our children those things. It's how God made them the same but different. In my life, I've known and been friends with and respected and honored two women who were pastors. Th- they believe that that passage in Timothy was a cultural adaptation. I, I don't accept that, I believe it's based on the creation itself. It's it's God's design of the male and the female. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that those two women are Christians. They loved our Lord, and they loved his people. They knew my position on that matter, and they accepted me anyway. And I supported them in their ministry, and I would not entertain someone who would have a bad word to say about either one of them. I met another woman pastor at the 175th anniversary of the church I was pastoring at the time and she had been a little girl when her father who had been invited to the celebration had been the pastor at that church years before me. Her father had become an apostate. He denied Christ and the resurrection and she on the other hand was biblically solid. She took Eugene Peterson's place in the church that he founded. Peterson is the guy that uh, wrote or translated that that, um, word message, that paraphrase of the Bible, right? She was biblically solid. It's interesting, isn't it? Her dad couldn't speak at that gathering because he was an apostate while she was a real believer and she couldn't speak because she was a she. But what can I do? We have to be true to what the Bible says. Well, may- maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I'm pretty certain I'm not. But I have to tell you this. I have to honor God whatever the case. And I can't go another way even if it would be easier for me to do. Male and female, we're made in the image of God. We are of infinite work. We're created the same but different and, and And sin has entered God's creation and it affects everything that we do, even the most wonderful relationship between a man and a woman. The same but different means there are some things men are better suited for than women and some things women are better suited for than men. One last story that I think might add a a little bit more light to this subject. Years ago, my pastor and my friend, Bo Matthews, was on an airplane and he was seated next to a woman and it turned out that way back then she was a pastor. And Bo, in his very gentle and kind way, uh, said to her, "I said, how do you kind of justify being a pastor as a woman because of what it says in Timothy? And she was a, a big black woman. And she leaned over and she looked Bo right in the eyes and she said, Honey, if the men would do it, I wouldn't have to. But since they won't, I will. So I will honor those who honor my God. I will love those who love my God. I will do my best as I live my life to honor my God and to love him wherever that leads. Whatever the world around me might be saying or doing, my trust is in my God and in his word. To him be the glory. And all glory be to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I don't know if maybe today someone is sitting here and um, and maybe they even have taken offense at what I've had to say. And if so, then I just pray, Lord, that they would understand that um, I don't hold anything against them, uh, that you love them, that I want to love them the best way I know how, that I simply want to stand for what you tell me I should stand for. And I pray that if there's anybody like that today, that maybe they've heard something today that they ha- haven't heard before. Maybe it's the kind of thing that might get into their heart and in their mind and, and begin to open up doors, open up new ways of thinking, uh, open up uh, uh, even questions about what they have been taught and what they've been told and what they've accepted as fact. May it ultimately, more importantly than anything else, Lord, may it bring them to the cross if they're not already there. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us, Lord. You've called us not to stand in judgment on others. You've called us to live for you and to love, first you and then our neighbors. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.